Here I am live, and we're trying to do this podcast, and I got an amazing guest with me, somebody, boy, we go way back, and uh, want to discuss what it's going to take to get you to Boston as a runner, and in so doing, I want to bring on, bam, Blue Benedict. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. So, so Blue, let me just give you a little something about Blue. Blue and I met, how long has it been? What, 12 years ago or something like that? Yeah, I think it's about 12. 12? Yeah. Even longer. Blue and I worked together. Uh, He'd been a runner, been a marathon runner, and an excellent runner for years before my time, before I met him. And uh, got Blue in the lab, did a VO2 on him. And oh my God, that was, did I just say 12 years ago? 12 years ago, he threw up, ready, an 85 VO2 score. Now, as a runner, that is massive. You could hear cross-country skiers, you know, world-class cyclists, but typically not runners throw those kind of numbers. And looking at his history, and at the time he was averaging about a 246 marathon, it stuck in my head. And by the way, I used to joke about it. We could be sitting down having coffee or a beer and say, hey, Blue, why don't you go run a marathon? He run a 246. He didn't have to prepare for that. He just does it, right? But what escaped him was the ability to run a 235. It just stuck, stuck, stuck at 246. And I was the one who said, Blue, the problem is you run like shit. And he's thinking... Look at you, you old, arrogant bastard. <laughs> and you've got the nerve to tell me that I run like shit and I can run a 246 marathon, whatever. And we started working on it, and lo and behold, we started to see the time started to drop. But one of the things that I wanted to touch on, and I think it's it bears sharing this information with people that have followed my podcast, The Natural Running Network. The Natural Running Network was never intended to be a podcast. As a matter of fact, the podcast came late. I think we were doing the Natural Running Network for a year or two before I ever did a podcast. And I did a podcast because I got invited on a podcast. It was the Marathon Something Program. I forgot what it was. As a guest. And the guy told me, he goes, you got to do a podcast because there's a shit ton of people that really liked hearing what you had to say about running and heart rate and what have you. So the Natural Running Network was actually Blue's brainchild, I believe, where you suggested, you know what, we can do a better job than what is typical in the coaching world for runners. Now, that might seem like an arrogant statement to make, but the difference is, and if you go out there and check it out, I'm just putting this out to the world. If you go out and check it out, what you're going to find is when they talk about running, that's all they talk about is running. If you find somebody who wants to talk about heart rate, that's all they talk about is heart rate. They don't mesh the cost of work associated with the mechanics of work and functionality and injury prevention and all these other things that I felt were really important if you're going to stand in front of people and be their coach. So Blue and I got together. We developed the Natural Running Network, and the focus was to educate potential coaches. They had a pass mustard with us. They had to pass a test. And then we would put them in our quiver as one of our coaches in the Natural Running Network. And the goal was to put this out all over the world, have coaches everywhere that had followed our our lead and, you know, be like 24-hour fitness where somebody from Chicago shows up in California, they show up at one of our workouts. If they're in the group, they're in the group, they can train with us. And Blue was my right-hand man in this, and he, he was a principal coach and basically one of the founders of that process. Blue can attest, I hope, that it was no cakewalk. You know, anymore, you can go take a certification, and if you could blow perspiration on a mirror, you pass. Where we fail people, right? (laughs) You remember failing people? Oh, yeah. And so we did what we called trial by fire. Aside from the, the written component, the physical component, the need to know a lot of different things, we had trial by fire where we, we selected some people from the population where, you know, guinea pigs. We put them out there and say, okay, here's your coach for today. 
and we would observe. We would just watch how they interacted with people. So to me, I don't care what you know. What matters to me is what you can teach, right? I can know a lot of stuff, but if I can't share it with you where you'll understand it, it's of no avail, no benefit to it. So we would observe. We would watch people interact with other people and just see, well, if you were out in the world coaching people, what might that look like? And they got graded on that. Do you remember how that used to shake out? Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard to remember. It was over, it was like a decade ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been but, a while. Yeah. It's been a while. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the, the podcast was an ancillary product. It was just the idea of getting the information out there and sharing that with people to see if we can build more allegiance to the thing. But it kind of took a, it took a, a path of its own. And, you know, I, I have yet to, in the last five, six years, been really in the running world. I've been more in the world of obstacle course racing. You know, I coach a lot of athletes in that in that space. And that's basically where I've been because a lot of those people identify that if they don't know how to run, they can't win a race. And, you know, and I've got people that are winning races because we cleaned up the way they move. But I didn't want to talk about that today. What I wanted to talk about today, what I wanted Blue here for is a couple of things. Number one, Blue, how many times have you been to Boston? I'd say about five, five or six, something like that. I mean, yeah, I think about five, five or six. I got a better question. How many times did you win the Lake Tahoe Triple? Yeah, I ran that one four times. I won it twice. I think I have the third fastest ever time. I feel like that's soft. I feel like I could go back and really go for that we'll see well i remember some time i remember when you finished that you would like do push-ups and what was the the, the deal you used to yeah, that was a that was the year i decided to experiment in crossfit and only did crossfit training for all of my races and after a whole summer of it i ran the tahoe triple and i decided to do a crossfit style workout on the finish line of every one of the because it's three marathons in three days right so each day i do i do a 300 workout 100 push-ups 100 squats 100 sit-ups for time. And it was interesting because my fastest time, what's that? At the finish line. At the finish line. And the fastest, the slowest marathon is always the third day because you're just so wiped. Um, But my fastest of the 300 workout was actually the third day, which was, which was interesting. So. But you were run all those marathons that you ran and three consecutive marathons in a weekend at altitude were under three hours each, correct? Yeah. Yeah, averaging uh, the first two days, I could hit 242, and you're, you're between six and 7,000 feet elevation. The first day, you gain something like 1,000 feet in the last three miles, go up a, a big pass. The third day is similar as far as the gain goes. Um, but yeah, 242, 242, and then the last day is like 257 or something, just trying to hold on. You're tired. I'm tired. Yeah, you earned it. Um, so... I wanted to get that out there because, and by the way, before I go any further, your PR to date is? 223.43 in Boston. Yeah. 223 at Boston. Yeah. And and so we discussed this before we got live here. The Boston Marathon for runners is basically the holy grail of running in the United States. And anybody that runs marathons, they're serious about running marathons. Their aspiration is to get to Boston qualify for Boston. And obviously, the younger you are, the harder it gets. The older you are, the harder it gets. There's no easy ride to get to Boston. And so what I wanted to do, and I wanted to get this like out there as the things that you need to concern yourself with, if in fact, you're going to get to Boston. And as we discussed too, because of the COVID circumstance and what have you, the the qualifying times are much more stringent. Um, because there was no race this year and it got postponed, and there's a lot of crap that went into changing the complexion of how that race is going to shake out. Uh, as you suggested, they're going to only allow about half the numbers that they did the previous uh, years. And yep. so it's not going to get easy to go to Boston, aside yep. from the fact that you got to qualify to get there. Yeah. So what we're really looking at is, uh, well, you're going to run it this year, right? Yeah, that's my goal. Yeah. So, October like tenth or eleventh or something this yeah, year. See, now you're pre-qualified, right? Yeah. So the the way they did it because of COVID and all that is if you have your qualif- your time from the last 2019 event will carry over just because we had a whole year of no racing. So 
Right. So Which I ran two twenty five flat or two twenty five oh two um twenty nineteen. Right. So and I should mention that you, you qualified for masters, right? Because now that you're over forty years old. Oh yeah. Let's go for the let's go for the win in the masters category. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I don't know what that looks like, but I'd imagine there's a lot of really fast forty year olds out there. Oh yeah. And I like some of these like, you know, some of the world-class athletes too, especially the Kenyans, we don't really know how old a lot of them are, but uh, I would bet that people like Kipchoge are getting up close to that. I don't know what his official age is, but they don't have birth certificates, right? So Yeah, I was going to say, they probably don't know how old they are. That's Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's actually a really good idea, you know? I mean, we spend way too much time worrying about age. I know I, I'm obsessed with age because yeah. I'm so freaking old. But just the idea of knowing that, oh, shit, I'm getting older again. You know, if you don't know how old you are, you just live your life and you just, you know. Yeah. What, you know, I'm all about that, man. Especially as older guys, we're all about that, right? When you're younger, you're like, yeah, I'm right. 25. Especially, especially if you're, you're, you're single and you're trying to date, right? You just, yeah. I want to break the news. <laughs> yeah. You start doing the math. I think my wife started doing the math when we met you. Wait a minute. He's like 14 years older than me. <laughs> you know, how old is he going to be? Let's see. Anyway. Time to trade him in, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, throw dirt on him, one or the other. Um, yeah. So we want to talk about what it's going to take to get to Boston. And we're using Boston as, as kind of a target because, as I su suggested earlier, most runners that are serious about running a marathon, that's on their mind. They want to get there. They want to go to Boston if they hadn't already done it. And that means that you gotta you got to throw down. you got to get a much better running time than you have in the past. And I, I don't have the qualifying times in front of me. It's like a moving target. It seems like they're always having to, to change them and, and make it faster, more, more difficult to qualify. Um, but let's assume that like, if you're 30 years old, what are you looking at? About a 310, something like that? I think it's 305, I believe. <clears throat> Three of, I think the fastest group is either three flat or 305. Like you said, it's a moving target and they're always changing it. But uh, it's either three, three flat or 305. So let's talk about what it's going to take to get there. And uh, I have some feelings about it and I'm sure you do as well. And we kind of touched on this. I don't want to steal your thunder, but clearly just working harder is not the answer. 100%. And it, the thing I love about the thing I loved initially about meeting you in the first place was that, and you brought it up earlier about, you know, maybe it's arrogant to say that we could do it better, but I've always appreciated that you're, you're bold in your approach and that you're not, you don't let what other people have done get in the way. If anything, you're paying attention to everything every coach has ever done. Um, you're very well read. You know what you're talking about. And you've got this 25 years of wisdom from working in the performance lab. Um, but you are, you're willing to say things that, that people for some reason aren't willing to say, like you need to change your running form. You need to change how you move. Um, it's funny because after we did our whole thing, you know, fast forward, I went into working with Nike as, as one of their head running coaches. And for seven years, you know, in one of the biggest, or the biggest sporting company in the world, the reluctance for anyone to to speak on running mechanics as something that you can improve on. I, I sat there in a room in New York City listening to one of their PhDs talking about, you know, we don't have, there's no scientific proof uh, with any specific evidence as to what causes running injuries. And it just sort of blew my mind. Like, dude, you have a PhD. I don't have a PhD in biomechanics, but I can tell you right now for the, the, thousand or so athletes I've worked one-on-one -on -one with, we absolutely change the, their, their relationship with injuries hundred percent. And that was something like, you know, me and you were doing, and I learned from you very early on. And so I think that piece where you're saying, first of all, let's change the way you run. Let's, or let's look at how you're running as the, as the foundation for everything else. That's, it's amazing. Here we are this many years later, and it's still, it's still not a universally accepted even concept. So it's, it's sort of just mind blowing to me that we're at this place in the world and um, yeah, we can still do better. You know, it's funny you say that because every day that I stand over someone when they're running and, you know, breaking it down, shooting video, slowing it down, playing it back, tearing it apart. It's always been kind of, for me, an experience based type of evidence. So there are people out there in the world that are convinced 
that you can't change the way somebody runs, and if you do, you're going to cause problems for them. There's people that sell that all day long. No, no, you just you run the way you do. It's like your nature and what. No, dude, it's physics. And I got to tell you, the majority of the people I run into, and I say the majority only because I know there's always an exception to the rule, but I've not met anybody that didn't have two femurs, two tibias, two fibias, you know, feet and bone structures that are very similar. You're going to get that, uh, that one off that's really, really bow-legged. Their bone structure is different. It's going to cause them to move in a way that's going to be really, really tough to change. And maybe not even a good idea to try. But the majority of the people that I run into, by making adjustments to the way they're approaching the work, and these are things that, I mean, almost instantaneously, the issues they were facing leading into the work went away. I've had people, I'm, I can't even tell you how many times, I give you case studies where I had a guy walk in with his, his shins were so lit up. He had the worst case of shin splints in the world fearful of coming to see me because he thought it was going to be useless. He wouldn't be able to run. In a matter of 10 minutes, is changing his approach to the way he was running. He was running pain-free. I had him doing hill repeats that same day with minus pain. He was just not hurting anymore. It's because he just stopped insulting that region of his body with the way he was landing. And Absolutely. so for someone to tell me, no, 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 you can't, no, no, you don't want to mess with the way people move. What a ridiculous thing to tell somebody. It's unbelievable to me. Yeah. And, and uh, so at the end of the day, what we're both kind of saying here is uh, if you can make adjustments to the way you're moving, you're going to start noticing that you can do more work and minus pain. You know, yep. running is not necessarily the path to pain. Running yep. poorly is the path to pain. And I love, you know, you see on social media these days, you see all these threads where people post, oh, yeah, well, you know, I don't run anymore because I got bad knees. Oh, uh, I'm on the elliptical now. My doctor told me to ride the elliptical and not to run anymore because I got bad knees or bad hips. No, you're just pissing off your joints by the way you're, you're insulting them when you hit the ground. And turn them around and just literally turn them around. I've had people that, like, their threshold for running a week, 15 miles. In a matter of a few months' worth of adjustments and training, they're, they're tripling their volume, minus pain. So it used to kill me to go 15. Now I'm going 45, and it doesn't, you know, I'm good. You know, running ultras, and they're good because they no longer did the things that were causing them problems. So... I don't need anybody to stand over me with their PhD or whatever to try to dictate to me how wrong I am about my thinking because I, I have the evidence to prove that I'm right. I mean, I have. Well, you know, yeah. yeah I mean, and another thing that complicates it is when you have people who get away with murder mechanically <laughs> and they have good results and then they're like, that validates their position that, you know, oh, so you don't need to run better. You can, and but I can do. recently, yeah, recently the, uh, the guy who's now the fastest um, Ironman marathoner, he ran the fastest split in the marathon. I think he and, and won the, the, um, the Ironman recently. He has this whole thing, his rant on his social media is like, see, look, all these people telling me not to run on my heels. Look, look what I did. And it's like, dude, that's not science. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, yeah. Well, well it's, I tell people all the time that it's a function of strength to weight ratio. How much your body can tolerate relative to how much weight you have. And so I run into people that are really, really structurally sound. They're strong. And they can put up with a ton. You know, maybe their break point is 40 or 50 miles where a lot of people with lesser stature might be half that. Um, but generally what happens is the bigger they get, the less they're likely to run. It's just too hard. It just takes a lot of energy to run when you're a big guy. So that's just generally not their jam. You know, people of lesser builds tend to like to run because it's easier to move their body through space. But at the end of the day, it's physics. So I guess what we're getting at, the long way around the horn here, is that you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. If you're not taking the time to invest in the way you're moving to make sure what you're doing is, a, is correct, and I'm going to say it, correct. I believe this in my, in my heart of hearts. I believe that there is a way to run, and there are many, many ways not to run. 
And I see it all the time. I see people that are just screwing it up. I see people that are close. And I see people that are doing well. And some of them just naturally capable of running well, running properly. And some people, um, they found another way to do it. <laughs> they just found another way to do it. So addressing the way you approach your work is really important. And uh, then you start looking at the cost of work. So I break it down into two components. It's what does it cost you to do what you're doing and how efficiently can you do it? Because the more efficiently you can do it, the less cost associated with doing it. That's really the challenges, those two things. I don't think you'd be as successful if you focused on one of those things versus the other. So, for example, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there, and I'll probably catch shit for it, but I don't care. I'm only like a, I get an old man pass. <laughs> Bill Maffetone is all about running aerobically. He teaches people to stay aerobic. The benefits of health and what have you to be aerobic. You're not going to win a race aerobic. You're not going to qualify for Boston running aerobically. You're going to need to get access to all of your energy system. And you're going to have to challenge yourself to develop the ability to get stronger and faster. You can't just focus on energy output. You need to focus on what it costs you to move as well. Uh, and so those two things. And I know that you've been coaching, as long as I've known you, you've been coaching athletes uh, as, as well as you know, competing yourself. Give me, let's just say I show up at the track today and I'm getting ready to hire Blue Bennett as a running coach. What's that going to look like? Oh, man. I mean, you know, the whole... The whole thing is like introducing the ingredients to me. It's it's funny because the way you've always looked at it and talked about it is like these the mechanics and the the energy systems are these pillars, and I feel like we're most of the traditional thinking is so far from considering the mechanical part a pillar of your training. You know, like it's let's just focus on the energy systems. Everything about the coaching has going to have to do with like what your workout is what you're, you know, what, how many intervals are we doing on our speed day? What's the volume? Like, but I love when you talk about it, like that's just half of it. Right. And the other parts of the skill work or the mechanical, you know, mechanical efficiency. Um, so for me, it's always been, it's always been that it's, it's making sure that they understand that the body has got to be prepared to handle all of these ingredients first. If you're, if you're not there, if you don't have the strength, if you, your structure is not strong enough to support the work, then we start there. If you've been running a lot, you have a super high volume, but you don't have any speed work, obviously the energy systems are, are what we're going to work at. So I think it's, you know, it's always about assessment. I feel like every athlete's the study of one, like, as you know, um, it's like we're applying all of these, these methods and ingredients that we know work to all of these varying degrees of athletes. So that's, I think, the challenge of coaching. Um, but I'm always... I'm always looking at like the least common de denominator. Like how could the bottom line for me is that what you did for me, what I've done to somewhere around a thousand athletes, which is take them from really using a lot of walking mechanics in their running to actually optimizing running mechanics so that you can run high volume, not get injured, actually train like elite level re relative to who you are. That needs to go out to millions of people. If there's 60 something million runners in the United States, there's 600 or 700 in the world. And, you know, if I'm talking about reaching a thousand athletes, it's just not, it's not enough. Right. So I'm, I look at it like, you know, things like this podcast and stuff, it's like getting the information out to a, a, large group of people and sort of dumbing things down to the point where it's digestible for everybody, right? If I, I can't work with every individual, you can't work with every individual on an individual basis. So what is it that we're, you know, I, I love the question of what, what do they, what do they get from you when they hit the track? I'm always trying to come at this angle of like at the very minimum, what are we going to give you? And I think it's, I, I'm at the place now where it's, it's the tools we use, but, you know, like the apps we use, the, the delivery systems of the, the coaching itself, but it still always comes back to the basic ingredients. You know, like what is your anaerobic training? What is your aerobic training? What part of the cycle are you in? What's the goal race working backward from there? And then really you have got to focus on the mechanical side of running. It's the skill and it's, running is a skill. As much as people don't want to think about it as a skill, you're not going to go to a tennis court and not take a tennis lesson. If you really want to get good, it's the same thing with running. You've got to work on how you're running first. So I've had, uh, and, and you know, I've discussed this uh, uh, many, many times before where 
a traditional group training program to prepare somebody for a marathon. This is where a lot, these are the feeder systems for a lot of people to run a marathon because they don't like, you know, a lot of people are, they're social by nature. They don't want to just go out and run every day by themselves. So they either got a friend they run with or they got a group that they run with. And a lot of these uh, nonprofit groups that are trying to raise money, like a Heart Association, a Leukemia, all these different groups, you know, they're, they're very noble in their approach to trying to raise money for a worthy cause, helping people get healthy to get there, what have you. But you got somebody, let's call her Sally, and she's standing there on Saturday morning to meet with you with a clipboard, and she basically takes role. Who's here? Who's not? Okay, today we're running five miles. And then progressively every week they're going to give you more and more volume to do. Maybe if they're good, they might slide in some, some track workouts or some tempo-style workouts somewhere along the way on the calendar. But all of it's focused on the amount of volume you're doing and how much intensity you're going to bleed into that volume. And there's very little consideration to the way you're going to move. So the first thing I need to know is, what does it look like when you try to run? And if it doesn't look good, we got to start there. we got to fix that, okay? Because we can't discuss how many more miles you're going to do or how hard you're going to throw yourself at it until we're sure that you're going to be safe in your approach. And i tell you something. You know, I wrote my first book, My Best Race, and I'm guilty. I panned right over that just like the rest of people. I started thinking, okay, you know, qualify yourself as a runner. Uh, how many miles a week are you running today? Uh, so, okay, I'm going to qualify you as an intermediate runner or a, a novice runner based on the volume you're doing, right? I gave – and, I mean, we did talk about running mechanics further in the book, but my recent book that I dropped on you just recently, it's the first thing we talk about is the way you're moving because we can't get to how much you're going to do or how fast you're going to do it until we concern ourselves with whether you're doing it correctly. And so – this is really important. It's like, so when I'm starting to talk about how to get to Boston, you're talking about how to get to Boston. Let's start with, can we fix the way we're moving if it's not correct? And a lot of people have pushed back with that concept simply because they're thinking, I've invested so much energy over the years in the way I'm moving. It's working pretty well for me. Why would I want to tear that down and start over? Right? That's a, that's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. Because the assumption is that if they do that, if they try to break it down and start over, that they're thinking it's going to take all the years that they've, they've put into what they were doing wrong in order to make it right. And you know, and I'm sure you've, you've borne witness to the fact that you take somebody and maybe they've been running pretty successfully and they came to you because they want to be even more successful and you bring about the fact that they need to change the way they're moving because they're getting in their own way, Right. But it may not take but a week or two. It might be less than a month where they actually adapt to the changes you've made. And it's basically like, like pulling the spear out of their chest. All of a sudden, you know, they're functioning again because we, we help them to get out of their own way. And then I start looking at cost. Okay, now that we're moving well, let's look at what it costs you to get from point A to point B. And how much can you spend? So I look at, I look at uh, your heart rate like an investment. How much do you have in the bank and how much can you spend before you go broke, right? It kind of comes down to that. And so you obviously want to expel as much work as you possibly can, but you don't want to pay retail. You want to pay wholesale. You want to make it be as least expensive as possible to produce the most amount of work as possible. And so there's a way, there are methods in which to develop your energy system so that you get the most out of what you're trying to achieve. And I think that a lot of people, again, they get pushed back because, oh, my God, that's oh, that's aerobic. You mean to tell me that i got to be at this heart rate to be aerobic? I always run, you know, 20 beats higher than that, and I feel fine. And then my question might be, well, how far do you run? Well, 30 minutes or 40 minutes. Well, yeah, anybody can do 30 or 40 minutes at a higher heart rate because they're not going to run out of gas. And the intensity is not so great that it's going to shut you down even earlier than that. So you're kind of in this quagmire, you're kind of stuck in this middle spot, and you're capable of pulling that off, right? So uh, adjusting heart rate responses according to the body's capacity to produce work and building on that. So again, like in your case, 
massive engine, massive, massive engine. 85 VO2 score. That's freaking off the hook, dude. But really at high expense. When you're out there doing what you do, in the early days, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the early days, you would throw down like a monster for 20 miles and then wrestle with that last six. And then you'd, you'd see the, the, uh, the goal distance or, or times just start fading as you start to closer to the finish line. Right? Absolutely. And it's just funny because it's something that you mentioned in your book, your new book, Train the Dark Side, about that fear of failure that people have. And that getting in the way, you know, like if you don't achieve a workout or you don't achieve something, it's like you, the Western way of thinking is that you failed at that and getting away from that thought process of, you know, that's not failure just because you took your body to failure. That's a success if that's what you're trying to do. And I think I had the luxury of having tried to run so many marathons and read so many books and just trying to get better and still keep hitting these same times. So I had this, I, I didn't have that fear of failures. Like the failure is in the, the continued performance. Another thing that you always say is, you know, it, it, doing something the same, expecting different results, definition of insanity. Um, so obviously I had done that plenty of times. So for me, it was an easy sell of like, oh, change everything. That's what I'm interested in. Um, and even now, you know, and I've been training with uh, Renato Canova's methods for a long time of real specificity and developing more power within the aerobic system. So, you know, really where he strays from traditional thinking is that the aerobic system doesn't have to mean slow running and that there's so many levels of percentage of, of potential race pace within the aerobic system and how you play with that work as you're going through a cycle, you know, determines what you can get away with at the high end of the aerobic. Um, and then using the anaerobic as a supplemental to, you know, build out that cardiorespiratory fitness. And I mean, that's, that's been awesome. I've had a great time with it, but even like your new concepts now of the way you're organizing the work, I'm still of the opinion that, why not rip it apart and try something new? Like, what do you, you know, got to lose? It's funny that you quote Carnova because I actually was researching some of his work. I was listening to one of his lectures. It was, I think it was on a YouTube channel. And uh, in the course of his lecture, try, try to appreciate, I'm in the middle of writing my book. I'm sitting here watching this, this legend discuss running and with these coaches and what have you. And you know what he said? And I'm telling you, I, I like to shit the bed when I heard him say it. He goes, and you know, he's being Italian and uh, you know, his, yeah. his English is, you know, a little edgy. He yep. said, you must learn to visit the dark side. <laughs> I, I said, what the fuck did he just say? I couldn't believe he said that. I said, oh, my yeah. God, that's the title of my book. And, you know, here a legend came out and says, you, you have to be willing to visit the dark side. Hmm. When he was explaining yeah. to people how you approach your training. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just cannot believe that he and I were on the same mindset. As a matter yeah. of fact, in the earlier edits of my book, I included what he had to say. And then I, I later thought against it and I didn't do it. But uh, it was really it was kind of a slap <laughs> in the head when I heard that he was actually thinking the very same thing that I was thinking. So, you know, on that point, the, the dark side is uh, it's going to be tough for a lot of people to wrap their head around because it's so um, novel and against tradition. But um, what I've learned is that in all the years that I've done diagnostics on athletes, I'll get these guys coming. For example, I'll get a guy comes in and from the, almost from the minute he gets on the treadmill to the time he gets off, he's blowing anaerobically. He's just, he's just, he has zero aerobic system. And then, start to talk to him about what he does and find out that the guy's running ultra marathon. How does that happen? How does that happen? Uh, and I'll give you another example and one that might resonate with a lot of people in the world that uh, Johnny G, who was the founder of the spinning program, was one of my clients. And Johnny G laid down the fastest 24-hour record preparing for the race across America. From Arizona to California, I forgot what the distance was, but it was a nutty, a nutty distance he traveled over 24 hours on his bike. And his threshold was about 140 beats per minute. So if you want to really look clinically at what's going on, after 140 beats per minute, he was anaerobic. He doesn't warm up until he's over 140 beats per minute. He's looking at throwing down another seven or eight hours of effort at 160 beats per minute on the bike. And just that's very sustainable for him. And I know clinicians that have tested him before me that would say, no, that's not going to work. 
And he was like, what do you mean it's not going to work? I do it all the time. You know, I, I, I get out of my bike at midnight and I ride till morning. And I'm, I'm over 150 beats per minute the entire time. How could you tell me that? And so what occurred to me is that obviously there's something else at play. His anaerobic system is working for him. He's really tapping into that anaerobic energy and he's getting what I refer to as an energy rebate from the lactate. And the, the other thing to concern yourself, you had mentioned earlier this fellow that ran well at Ironman. Maybe what? You know, to go out and hammer on a bike for, well, uh, the guys that win are doing it in 112 miles in uh, four hours and change. They're not aerobic on the bike for those four hours. They come out of the water hard. They're not aerobic coming out of the water. When they hit the ground running for the marathon, they may be aerobic for a bit, but if they plan to win, they're not going to be. So you're looking at potentially tapping into your anaerobic metabolism, let's say for half that time. So four or five hours. You cannot store four or five hours worth of carbohydrate on your body, and you certainly can't repay it in that time frame. So what's at work? So you're actually getting this energy rebate that I discussed. And so a lot of it's been done intuitively. None of it's been done where there's a, a, a segregated progression of process. They're just out there doing their thing and it's starting to work for them. And so the dark side was about that. It's about learning to make friends with this lactate instead of looking at it like this, you know, this villain, this enemy that you got to avoid. You got to learn to make peace with it because you don't have two separate energy systems. You have an energy system and there's a bottom of it. There's a top of it. And you're going to tap into what part of that energy system based on demand. And if you live in the low part all the time, you're never going to improve in the high part. If you live in the high part all the time, you're never going to improve in the low part. And so the idea of trying to put one workout in one day that's aerobic and one workout that's anaerobic the following day, that may not pan out. I'm sure people do it very successfully, but I'm here to tell you that, like we discussed, if you were to integrate all aspects of your energy system effectively over the course of your training, you could probably still throw down the same type of volume. You're not going to leave anything off the table any any part of the week, and it's going to make a big, big difference. So, and, and I realize that this is like a mouthful for a lot of people to absorb right now, and they probably think, what the hell is he talking about? And the bad news is if you really want to know, you're going to have to read my book. <laughs> That's um, good news. But, but so the, the, the point of the matter is this, is that I think that we're on to something that is unique. And the capacity to produce significant improvements in your running capacity, whether it be a 5K, 10K, half marathon, ultra marathon, has to do with those two things. It has to do with, A, making sure that you're on point with the way you move. Don't go out there. I'm sure you're familiar with Leo Manzano. Yeah. So I did an interview with Leo Manzano. Leo Manzano won the silver medal at the, uh, at the Olympics in London. What was that? Probably it's been... 2012? It's been a while back, right? Yeah. Tw uh, no, maybe 2016. I don't remember which one it was. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. But, but Leo yeah. and I had this conversation. Leo runs in training, ready? 40 miles a week. Wow. He said everybody that he trains with is in the hundreds on a weekly basis. He runs 40. He said, but he never puts his foot down on the track unless it's absolutely premium in movement. And if he identifies that there's anything gone wrong with the way he moves, he stops, figures it out, addresses the problem, and goes back to work. So every step he takes on in his workouts is quality work. Now, I'm not mm. trying to suggest to someone that they, if they want to run – uh, a marathon, they should run 40 a week. To the contrary, I think if you're going to try to be an elite athlete uh, and you're trying to cover that distance, as you attested, you know, your high a high week for you is 100 miles plus, and uh, a moderate week for you is, what, 60, 70, something that average. Uh, yeah. I think you need to go there. I think you need to have time on your feet. But the, the argument I'm trying to make is that the way you move is the first concern. If you're not addressing it, give it energy right away. Today, now, you know, search it out. Find a guy like Blue. Uh, maybe even if you're tolerant enough, you can even put up with me. <laughs> but um, find somebody that can help you move. I think that's the first thing you need to worry about. Don't concern yourself with what's going to happen a month from now. 
right? A lot of people get caught up in what's happening now. Oh, my God, I don't have enough time. If I do this now, I'm going to be wasting all this time. I don't know. I, I'm just not I'm, not, I'm not looking to, the, if you can make serious inroads in your, your capacity to move in the, the first week, two weeks of training, all the rest of it is immaterial. Yeah, and I feel like people are making, a lot of the athletes I work with, it, I feel like it takes them way less time than it took me, simply because, you know, it, I, I feel like we've gotten to a place with it and with the delivery where we can, you can just get right in there and get to it and, and the cues are simpler, you know, there's the conversations easy. It, I think the reluctance is where initially, you know how when the athlete first takes on this, all these new patterns, the efficiency goes down. And I think that's when you get the, the people who don't really believe in the process are going to come back and say, well, look, I got slower. It's like, you got it. You got to hold on and get through that adaptation period, like anything before you get better. And it's, I mean, it's the best meeting you. I mean, I was organizing the Malibu Marathon back when I met you and you, we met at some expo. I went to your lab, got the test done, told me I run like crap. And I didn't, I, I initially didn't believe you until you showed me video of myself running and, and broke down exactly what wasn't efficient and it made total sense. And that's when you got my attention, you know, and I think it's, it's easier when it's relating to the person, but the reality is like, that's the best thing that ever happened to my running. And every single, I, I, I had to bring this up of all the people I've trained that had knee injuries coming in a hundred percent that I know of, of the people that had knee injuries, no longer have knee injuries. A hundred percent. That's crazy. That's not what, what scientific study has that ever happened? Right? Like I don't, again, there might be an outlier that it's not coming to me, but everyone that I know of that came to me with knee pain has gone and they have no knee pain five, 10, 15 years later. That's crazy. Um, so there's that part, but no matter if it's performance or injury, whatever your motivation is, it's the best investment you can make. So take the time. Maybe it's a month, maybe it's two months. Maybe in my case, it was more like a year. Best thing I ever did in my running. Well, and now I can look back. I'm 41 and I can still run. Right. So I've had people come to me concerned that they, because they really enjoy running, they want longevity. They want to be able to continue to run as they get older. They don't want to have this place where they, they can't do it anymore. And uh, then you have people that are more uh, concerned with uh, performance. But, you know, I work with kids. And I, I work with kids that generally they're soccer players. That seems to be something that I see a lot. And when I'm trying to explain my process, you know, that usually I'll have a kid come in with his parents and I'll do a video analysis and I'll explain to them what I see and what needs to change and why. And if I'm selling it to the kid, I'll tell him about how much faster he's going to be and how much better he's going to perform. When I'm selling it to the parents, I'm telling him he's going to be safer. He's not going to hurt himself and have more longevity work. And But the path is the same. So <laughs> if you don't run properly, you're going to get injured. If you don't run properly, you can't perform. I mean, and you suggested it. And I, I, believe me, I know, I know a ton of guys. I can give you... Again, I pull my old man card out. Mike Wardian, do you know him? Yeah, Wardo. He beat me in Boston in my PR. Like he was ten seconds ahead of me. I uh, years ago, I got invited on the Spartan cruise, and the owner of the Spartan community, uh, uh, Joe DeSena, said, "Look, I want you to invite some of your athletes, some of the people you know that are interesting, and we'll give them all expenses paid to come on this cruise." Got a hold of Mike. You want to go to the Bahamas? He's like, whoa, what? I said, can, I, can I bring my family? I'm like, yeah, you can bring your family if you want to, but we're only paying for you. <laughs> but, so, Mike comes up to me on the ship. He goes, hey, we had uh, television cameras and what have you on the, on the cruise. They said, you think that they'd be willing to cover me if I set a world record on the treadmill for 50K? I said, yeah, that sounds pretty entertaining. Let's see if we can get the crew in there, you know. So we videoed him running on the treadmill for 50 kilometers setting out to set a world record. And I believe at the time the record was to break uh, three hours for, for uh, 50 kilometers. And the way to do it is you set the treadmill at 10.5 miles per hour and just run. And leave it alone. <laughs> just keep running at 10.5 miles per hour. And I stood there with uh, the guy from uh, Runner's World Magazine. What is his name? Anyway, it escapes me, but He's going, look how beautifully he runs. And I'm looking at him going, you've got to be kidding me. He runs like, shit. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, and I didn't want to really say it because, you know, like, okay, here's Mike. And Mike's pretty badass in the world of uh, trail running masters, right? 
So he fell short. Uh, he actually hit the panic button accidentally while he was running, and it cost like a minute or so to get it going again. So he missed the world record by like a minute. And so I saw him later that day, and he says, I want to do it again tomorrow. So he came Damn. back like uh, 17 hours later and got back on there, and, did it, and then he, he did. He managed to pull it off. Damn. Uh, so he's testament that a guy that doesn't have really tremendous running skill is very successful as a runner. And, you know, obviously he was sponsored by Hoka, which probably isn't helping, you know? Yeah. But, right. uh, <laughs> but the point of the matter is, you know, to, to support your position is that there's a lot of guys out there that don't run well that could run a lot better. I mean, to yeah. me, if you could run, if you can get away with the times you're showing me, the way you're moving, how much better could it be if you if you cleaned up some of this trash, right? Yeah. So I guess the take home in this, and we could do this for five days, right? Even just eat lunch and just stay here. But the take home, <laughs> in my opinion, and, and I'm sure you have some opinion on this, so please throw it in there. Whoever's listening to this right now wondering, well, what's the tip? What is it yeah. that i got to do to get to what the <laughs> The first thing you need to do is check yourself before you wreck yourself. I want you to start looking at the way you're moving. And have somebody that knows what they're doing help you get there. Don't rely on a book to get there. Don't rely on watching somebody's video on how to run, get you there, because your perception can be skewed. When you're moving, you might think you're doing something that you're not. You need some help, somebody to stand with you and show you what to do. So get that running organized. Make sure you're getting that done right before you start you know, getting the, the dry erase pen out and start scheduling how much running you can do each week, every month. Um, then start focusing on developing your energy system. And if you don't know what that means is how to find out what your, your metabolic turn point is, where you're starting to burn sugar versus fat, you need to figure that stuff out. And that you can find anyway. And as far as the nuances, how much, Blue, you're the technician in this, how much speed intensity do you think you need on a weekly basis leading into an event that you're trying to PR in? I mean, I, I always, it's like some speed is the first answer. <laughs> you know, I think, I think so many people that's like, that's what falls out or something happens. It's like, and I was going to say this about the skill work as well. The speed and the skill work are, are two separate things. You know, people look at a lot of our training, they see these like short, fast intervals and their brain goes to speed work. When in reality, the purpose of that workout is mechanical. It's a, it's a skill work, right? That's when you're, you're visiting your, your maximum range of motion, your, your leg speed turnover, the motor, the neuromuscular connections that you need to be more efficient at speed. Um, it, it, people for the life of them, especially marathoners, can't get it out of their head that like that's not a speed workout. That's your speed workout's another day, and that the 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 predominant system at work there is the aerobic system, even though you're running fast. Which that's something that which do you still call it motor skill development? That was that was I remember that you first introduced introduced me to the concept of that, and I've done that every week since. And that's something that, and I, I would say that never stop. That's the first thing that you need to put into every single week or, or consistently into your training. However you're organizing the work, you've always got to revisit the skill as a, as a main part of, of your entire recipe, right? And then with the speed work, when you're going into that anaerobic system, obviously, you're, the more you do it, the more you can do it and the better that system gets. And so you have to start small and then you're building up as you go. And depending on how long the athlete has to work for their cycle, if somebody tells me they've got an eight week cycle, that's going to change how much we can get away with, how much speed work we can you know, introduce, um, just how good they'll get in those systems, how, how fast they'll adapt their cardio, cardiovascular system has got to adapt to the workload and, and before they can even add more. So, I mean, that's all at play, but the more time you have, the bigger the system can get, the more speed you can, speed work you can do before your event um, and just, and keep growing that global strength of, of the entire system. And I, I, it's funny because as I say these things um, and really using very much Canovian influence methods over the last, I'd say since 2012, um, 2013, right in there, a lot of what I've been reading in your new book with the dark side, it's like, like it, it challenges the traditional models for how to organize these, these ingredients. Um, so the recipe is like, it's different, but 
it is still the same in that in a given week, in a given month, the workloads, the percentages of your total work done are are similar, right? Like you're still spending a, a, a progressing amount of time in the anaerobic system um, and your aerobic is going to be getting faster because you're just getting more efficient globally. So yeah, it's there's no perfect answer for any of this, right? But um, it's a matter of progression and it's a matter of adaptation. So just start now and start doing speed work. Well, and again, when you talk speed work, a lot of people throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it's, you know, we talk about this often. It's like somebody says, hey, let's do a track workout tomorrow. You go, oh, yeah. Because you remember yeah. the last time you did that track workout, everything hurt. You know, like for a week, you didn't want to do anything because you were so sore, right? You, your hamstrings are lit. You're just having all kinds of issues because of the high-intensity effort. And you're not paying attention to the way you're moving. Your focus is exclusively on trying to beat the clock. And that's not, that's a recipe for disaster. That's, that's a guaranteed mistake because you're no longer creating speed. So, for example, let's say we're going to go do... 10 400s, and we schedule it ahead of time. We're going to, we're going to do 10 400s on a, on a minute 15, and we're going to take uh, 60 seconds recovery in between. And we got 10 people to show up at the track to create that work. Three of the guys managed to pull it off. Two of the guys can't get the, the minute 15, uh, but they're trying. They're trying hard. They're throwing their ass at that as hard as they can, and, the, and just all reason is gone from their work. So every time they're trying to produce a 400, it's progressively getting slower. Are we really doing a speed workout? Or is this just, uh, you know, <laughs> my brother used to uh, talk about Scott Ledoux. Most people don't know or remember who Scott Ledoux was. Scott Ledoux was the warm-up guy for Muhammad Ali. And they didn't have something to do <laughs> for Muhammad Ali. They would bring Scott Ledoux in. He'd fight any day of the week. He don't care. And Muhammad would put on a clinic just pounding this guy into the ground but scott take it right he'd get all beat up his face busted up he'd show up another day and do it again i don't want to be scott ledoux i don't want to be that guy that shows up and just takes a, a trouncing and it's not it's to no avail it's not making you faster you're just finding out how fast you need to go before you break something right and so the skill work is the path to developing your capacity to sustain speed and when you start to violate that, that limit in your capacity for speed because of speed, you're making a big mistake, right? So that's what the motor skill thing was all about. But believe me when I tell you, that to me is one of the most critical ingredients in a training program that I've ever delivered to anyone, is make sure that you work on developing your speed through skill. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't just, you know, look at the clock and say, well, if I throw myself at this harder, maybe it'll, I'll get across the finish line faster because yeah. that's not going to work. Man, oh, man, we could do this. Like I said, we could do this all day long. But before we go, I want to talk about a project you're into because I think people want to hear it. This new project is called Guru, correct? Yep. Explain what, what this is. So it's, you know, it's a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. It's you and I have both have such success stories with the athletes we work with. And um, it's an awesome thing. It was, you know, my years at Nike, it definitely set me apart. Um, my methods were different than a lot of the coaches that I worked with. And a, a big part of it was mechanics. But I've always felt like it's not reaching far enough. And guru running is a way to bring everything that has made us successful in the sport or in coaching um, to a, a much larger number of people. And so it's what I consider to be the most comprehensive guidance tool and system that will be available to runners as a whole. Um, a way to bring, you know, the mechanics, it really a way to bring all of the ingredients that will guide an athlete, a runner, um, down the path to becoming the ultimate version of themselves, whether they're trying to be, you know, a fitness athlete, you know, maybe they're a high rocks runner, a, you know, OCR guy, maybe they're a marathoner, a mile or 5k athlete, whatever your whatever fires you up and gets you going is really not the point. It's that's the journey, right? And so along that journey, you have your day and we all live in our day. And so guru basically delivers the day to the athlete from a more holistic perspective, something that you don't see a lot in the running world. Um, 
Uh, so it's, it's that it's this holistic perspective where we're looking at mindset. We're looking at the workouts that we do. We're looking at the ways we connect with our community around us. And like that all, that all fits into the day. And that's all the stepping stones that you go down on this journey to becoming the better version of yourself. So delivered through an app, um, delivered through YouTube podcasts, all these different components and tools that we have now with technology. Um, but really trying to be, trying to fill the gap for what we see in regards to the sport of running, just sort of it's like the uh, the industry throws you the keys of a seven forty seven and you're a first time pilot and then they wonder why you crash and burn. You know, you don't it's you need to learn the entire, you know, you need the you need the the program. You need to know what to do and not just in regards to coaching, not just in regards to the workouts to do, but it's it's how you think about the workout you're doing. How do I control my body? How do I control my breathing? If I'm going into it says five by one K on this plan, what does five by one K mean? Okay, two to three minute recoveries. To me, I know exactly what that means. If you've been a runner for years, you know what that means. If you're first coming at this sport, that's very alienating because you have no idea even what, what, what you should be thinking about. So, you know, the tools we have with heart rate and, you know, all the stuff that you do, Richard, I mean, that is that helps an athlete start to understand the holistic, you know, components that go into how do you how do you ultimately master your body and your mind through this sport? But it's almost it's almost adding another layer of first before we even go there, you need to get your mind right or you need to be you need to have a, a guru or a teacher t- telling you like, hey, look, you're at class now. Now it's time to learn. Here's what we're learning today. Um, and I think that's just been absent from, you know, a lot of the big time. And if you're getting coached by us, it's a different story. But, you know, most people aren't. The majority of runners, the 600, 700 million runners in the world are not paying for a coach right now, but everyone needs this stuff. So Guru is our vehicle to bringing the stuff that we do to the greater audience. I think it's an incredible idea. And I think the accessibility is going to be really, really critical for all of us. Uh, As you suggested, you can only be so many places, right? I remember back in the day before there was internet and there was computers and I was doing the diagnostics and the work I do, I said, you know... What do I do after I've exhausted the people who want to from the people that can or, you know, in my area? What do I do now? I mean, because I have a pretty big investment in, in what I do financially and mentally. And uh, how do I bring it to more people? That was always a conundrum for me. It's like, how am I going to do it? Now, you know, here we are uh, so many years later, I mean, literally over 20 years later, and uh, have people coming to visit me from all over the world. <laughs> it's kind of wild. And, and so we'll, you know, I'm not doing really much different than I'd done years ago. I, I think I'm a little bit more uh, educated, a little bit more schooled at what I do. But to this day, I'm still convinced that every bit of what I've done so far was a worthwhile endeavor. I think that uh, it's benefited a lot of people. And uh, I'm excited about it every time I do it. And I, I know that you feel the same way. So I'm glad we had a chance to get back and do this together. And I, I'm excited to maybe have a, a hand in your project. And uh, we're looking forward of- to the collaboration because, you know, it's, it's all I've always loved that every time the years that I was, you know, I consider myself an apprentice under you for, for years of my, my running. And even now, because it's every time I hang out with you, I feel like I learned something. And I think that essentially what we are trying to create is, is that it's bringing that to people, you know, like we're all teachers, we're all students and wisdom is knowing which side to be on in every moment. Right. So it's like, I'm smart enough. I might not be the smartest guy in the room, smart enough to know that I'm not the smartest guy in the room and I'm listening. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, as far as like the collaboration with you, um, that's, that's another exciting thing, like what we can continue to build upon and, and do in the future. So the people that are watching this probably don't realize, and I'll share with them that the, the fact of the matter is, is that after 12 years, and really, I've not seen you in a while. I mean, really haven't seen you in a while. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've been married, developed a family, gone on in the world and done all the things that you've done. But here we are, like so many years later, and you and I are both still as passionate about what we're doing 12 years ago as we are today. And that's got to talk huge for a lot of people that are on, as you suggested, a journey, you know, because I know people that are in the business of fitness and what have you, and that ain't going to be where they're going to be in 10 years. <laughs> they're going to get a real job somewhere and they're going to get a real life somewhere. And 
for us, this is the real life. This is what we do. 100%. Happy to be here, right? Yeah, fish or cut bait, <laughs> this is where it's going to work out. That's right. Well, look, Blue, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, we will absolutely revisit this and probably do some more. Uh, as soon as you start to spin off uh, this beta program, I think we should introduce it to people. People are interested in knowing more about what you're doing. They can reach you at... Yeah, blue underscore Benedum on Instagram because that's, you know, social media, right? <laughs> yep. And you want to make sure that you start following and subscribe. Hey, you know, I'm, as old as I am, I, I realize the importance of this social media myself. All that's right, right. Thanks, man. You bet.